0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening. Uh, we got some visitors with us. I'm glad you guys are joining us uh, this evening. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Wymans are back. They've not been able to come in a while. We are glad that you guys are back. Now, Owen and everyone seems to be doing all right. Praise God. Sincerely, really glad to see you. Owen, I love you, man. <laughs> right on. So, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Uh, you, as you guys could guess, we are finishing our study of the Ten Commandments this evening, and uh, we will be starting the Gospel of Mark either this week or the week after next. Uh, Lord willing, uh, Pastor Gary Chaffins will actually be preaching to you guys uh, next week. Uh, and I'll be taking a week to kind of prepare uh, the Gospel of Mark. Not that I'm preparing it as I'm writing it, but prepare to preach through it. Uh, but tonight we're taking a look at the Tenth Commandment uh, and considering coveting and sins of the heart. And I never hardly do this, but I'd like to begin our time together with a poem. Uh, and it's a poem by uh, a pastor named Charles Swindoll or Chuck Swindoll. Here's the poem. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. And We never really seem to be content, do we? We never really seem to be content. Like the poem said, we're young and we want to be older, we're older, we want to be young. Uh, It's winter, we wish it was summer. It's summer, and we wish that it was winter. It it seems like there's always something else that we want. Most people live lives of discontentedness. Um, In life, you'll meet very few people who are actually at peace with where they are and what they have. Um, Our culture is one of of being dissatisfied and discontented. Uh, Our culture constantly screams at us, buy this, get that. Chase your dreams. The Lord knows we've seen enough of that kind of stuff posted on Facebook. Chase your dreams, right? Don't stop until you've got whatever it is that you want. Don't take no for an answer from anyone. And the dreaded, you deserve it. Whatever it is, you deserve it. We're bombarded on all sides every single day with advertisements, right? We're constantly being led to believe the lie that whatever we have isn't. Good isn't enough or isn't good enough. And generally, we believe that. Like, as a whole, we believe that. We believe that we need more than we have or we need something nicer than what we have or faster or better. But rarely will you find a person who is actually content with what God has given them. Instead of being content with what we have, most people are covetous, they're fueled by a desire for what they don't have. And though our culture claims to be secular, we actually live amongst a religious cult, the cult of the next thing, right? Always wanting more. Nothing is ever enough. And that's what our commandment this evening speaks to, covetousness and contentment. Now, Coveting is an inordinate desire for anything, and we're going to expound on that. It's an inordinate desire for anything, when a person longs for something that doesn't belong to them and they have no right to it, then they are coveting. Right now of all the 10 commandments, this one's is this one is weird. Right? This one stands out as distinct from all the rest of the 10 commandments. Now I say that because all of the other commandments, the first 9 commandments can be broken visibly. Like you can witness someone breaking one of the nine other commandments, right? And people could be persecuted in court. Uh, for breaking them in Old Testament Israel. What I mean is you can see or hear adultery, theft, murder, idolatry, improper worship, false witnessing, blasphemy, Sabbath breaking, and disobedience to authority. You can witness those things in some way. But you cannot see what goes on inside another person's heart. But the 10th commandment forbids a heart sin. The 10th commandment forbids a sin of improper desire, right? And this commandment, it really sets the second table of the law. That's commandments 5 through 10. It really sets the second table of the law apart from every other law code of the ancient world. You can read some ancient law codes and see that they nearly all show agreement with commandments 5 through 9, right? Honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, those things. But no other law code has a prohibition on the heart, no other law code has the 10th commandment or anything like it where our heart sins are forbidden. And this teaches us something important. Since there's a commandment forbidding us from having sinful desire, and since there's a commandment from for forbidding us from not being content, this teaches us that God is demanding all of us. Like as in like all of who you are. God says, all of who you are is to be mine. Even your heart, your thoughts, everything is meant to be mine. God isn't just demanding external obedience from people. He's demanding to have our hearts. So again, mere external obedience is not enough for God because as you all know, God judges the heart, not only the action. And only God can place a law on us that governs our hearts and desires because only God can truly see our hearts to judge them. Indeed, this is the divine law of God. So this commandment is different from the others, sets the law apart, speaks to our hearts and our desires in an explicit way, and it condemns every sinful desire that we have. It condemns our being unsatisfied with knowing God. It condemns our desire to always want more. So my prayer is that God would open our eyes to see our covetousness and that he would grant us contentment in him and that in this sermon, like all the others, that he would show us how Christ and his gospel is the remedy for our sin. So let's go ahead and read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to our commandment in verse 17. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, please open our minds that as your word is proclaimed, we might be led into your truth and taught your will. Please help us to take what we learn this evening and actually apply it to our lives. Keep us from being mere hearers of the word and never doers grant to us hearts that long to glorify you in all we say, in all we do, in all we think, and in all we desire. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So our commandment tells us that we aren't to covet our neighbor's house, wives, servants, animals, or anything, right? Anything that is our neighbor. So just straight out of the gate, I want you all to know that this commandment is all-encompassing. God did not leave you a loophole here. Or anything that is your neighbor's. Right? So we're not to covet anything that belongs to another person. Right? That's what's being explicitly stated in the commandment. No coveting. Right? In the New Testament, whenever it, this commandment is repeated, it's just, you shall not covet. Right? Just in general, anything. And remember, according to the Lord Jesus in his parable of the Good Samaritan, your neighbor shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Your neighbor is anybody in the world. Right? Anyone that you know or know of. Or come into contact with. Okay, so this is everybody. You're not to covet anything that belongs to anyone, anywhere, period. But what does it mean to covet? Right? Whenever I was little, I was always just kind of thought, Yeah, I have no idea what the 10th Commandments saying. Hopefully, if someone ever sees me breaking it, they'll just point it out to me and teach me then, because I have no idea what it means to covet. <laughs> um, but in Hebrew, to covet simply means to desire. To covet means desire. Literally, it's what it means. To desire something is to literally covet it. But obviously, this commandment is telling us to not covet, so it must be telling us to not desire in a sinful way. There has to be a sinful aspect of desire. So we could say that coveting is here's one definition an inordinate desire for something that you don't have a right to or doesn't belong to you. Or you could say coveting is a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something that belongs to another. To covet is to crave something, to long for it, to yearn for it, to set your heart on something that is not yours, that does not belong to you. And again, I can't help that this word consumed is really important whenever we think about the word covet, to be consumed with desire for something that you have no right to. Now, I want to be clear, this commandment is not forbidding us from having desires in general. Right? God has given human beings legitimate desire. It, it, it's not coveting to desire food when you're hungry or to desire sexual intimacy in the covenant bonds of marriage, things like that. It's okay to have desires. Right? We have tons of desires that are perfectly fine. People have desires for marriage, desires for children, good jobs, to have a home, to have a car so they can get around. To, people have desires for friendship and community, right? and that's fine. And above all, Christians ought to have a desire to know God and please him. And that's certainly not a sin. It's not a sin to have desire. Okay? We're not Buddhists. Right? If you know much about Buddhism, uh, in, in Buddhism, they, they believe that desire is the source of all suffering. So in, in Buddhism, they actually strive to not desire anything so that they can reach nirvana or enlightenment, this higher plane of existence. But, but ironically enough they desire to reach nirvana. Um, so their religion is kind of self-refuting. Uh, it's a bunch of nonsense. But anyhow, we're not talking about Buddhism this evening. We're talking about coveting. Um, but God does not forbid us from desiring things. Right? I, I, I want to be clear on some stuff because there, there can be misconceptions whenever you hear that you're not to have sinful desire. Um, it's not a sin to want to do well in life. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin to want to get a better job than you have. It's not necessarily a sin to want to make more money, depending on your motives. It's not a sin to want things that you don't have. Right? The Proverbs tell us that a wise man works hard and saves his money and has something to pass on to his children. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do well in life. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament tells slaves... That if they get an opportunity to buy their freedom, they should seek to be free. Right? Like, it's okay. Like, you don't want to be a slave. That's awesome. And if you get the opportunity, don't be a slave anymore. Right? So it's okay to want to better yourself. It's okay to want to be in a better position in life and get the things that you desire. So long as you're not desiring something inherently sinful or have a sinful desire. And I also want to be clear on this. Again, just before we dig into this too deeply. Know this it is okay to hurt and acknowledge that you're in pain because life is hard it's not coveting to not want to be in pain it's not coveting to want life to be easier necessarily it's not necessarily coveting it's okay to complain to god and cry out to him in your suffering and distress and ask him to fix things there's nothing wrong with that it's okay to talk to others about where you're at in life and what you would like to happen. And it's okay to do whatever you can without sinning to try and alleviate the painful situation that you might be in. That's all fine. None of those things are forbidden by the 10th commandment. Right? We actually have plenty of godly examples of scripture uh, in Scripture where people are suffering and doing all of those things. Hannah, Samuel's mother, cried out to God, please give me a child. There's nothing wrong with that. King David cried out all all throughout the Psalter, all throughout the book of Psalms, that God would help him in his distress, right? As he's being chased down and, and, and hunted down and lots of bad stuff happened to David. And then we see the Lord Jesus himself praying that the cup of suffering might pass from him if that would be God's will. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging that you're in a painful situation and asking God to fix it. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. What this commandment is forbidding, though, is having a consuming desire for the things that belong to other people. That's what's being forbidden. It forbids being discontented with what God has given you. Right? Claiming that He hasn't done enough for you. Or that He is withholding something from you that you actually must have. This commandment forbids us from being consumed with wanting more. Specifically wanting things that belong to your neighbors. So coveting is not just... Mere generic desire, coveting is being fueled by a desire and allowing that desire to govern your life and your thoughts and your actions above all other things. All right, but what are the things that we covet? How do we covet? What are our hearts saying when we covet? And, and I think uh, I, I want to give you guys some examples um, of how we covet. Hopefully this will help you see what exactly I'm getting at, because this seems fairly abstract, I'm sure, to to some of you. Some examples. Someone you know gets a new car, and all you can think is, I want that. Why do they get to have it, and I don't? My car is a piece of junk. Why Why does my neighbor get that, and I don't? Or you go to a friend's house and you think, man, they've got a lot of nice stuff up in here, right? Why don't I have anything this nice? Why do they deserve this? I wish it was mine. Or you know a couple that has a ton of children, right? Like it seems like the husband looks at his wife and she just gets pregnant, right? And they have like six kids. And as far as you can tell right now, you're not able to have any. And you look at them and think, why not me? Why should they have six children and I can't even have one? That's not fair. Or You see someone's wife and she's aged very well. She's a very pretty woman and you think, I wish she was my wife. Why can't my wife age like her? Or, conversely, you see a friend's husband who is incredibly helpful around the house and always kind to the children and kind of keeps himself in shape and you think, I wish that was my husband." Why can't I have a man like that who will look like that and do those things and have that kind of a disposition? Another example, you know, you know someone who got a great job in your field that you would love. And all you can think is, it's never me. It's never me. Why does he get to have that job and I have this loser job? I should have gotten that job and not him. You know, someone who is wealthy and all you can think is, I wish I had their money. They don't need all of that money. Why am I stuck with this month-to-month garbage? But coveting doesn't just have to be for things or people. It can be for skills, abilities, health, things like that. Like, why are they healthy and I'm not? Why do I deal with depression and they seem so happy all the time? Why are they able to walk and run and jump? And I have such a hard time with that. I wish we could switch places so that they could know how I feel. Why do they get a healthy body and I don't? Why can't I be as smart or as pretty as she is? Everything seems to come so easy to her and it's not fair. I wish I had her mind. I wish I had her looks. I wish I had as much influence on people as he does. I wish I had his abilities, so people would come and ask me for advice. I wish I could do the things that he does so people would look at me like that. Why does he get it all and I've got nothing? last example why does everyone around me seem to be married (laughs) why does everyone around me seem to be getting married and i've got no one i deserve a spouse i wish i was one of them i know we could give thousands of more examples of coveting but i think those suffice to get in your head what the violation of this commandment looks like coveting is an intense desire to have what other people have To want their stuff, to want their kids, to want their spouse, to want their abilities, to want their life in some aspect. Coveting constantly says in the heart, I don't think that they deserve it, and I should have it instead. Or I want what belongs to them. Or why not me? Why shouldn't I have it? Or if I don't have it, they shouldn't have it either. You ever thought that? Or, I wish that I had it and they didn't. You see, coveting always has an eye of jealousy. It's ugly, isn't it? Coveting always has an eye of jealousy and envy. You're envious of your neighbor, you're angry that they have and you do not. And this is particularly why coveting is a sin against your neighbor it's a violation of the second great commandment. You cannot love your neighbor as you love yourself and also want their stuff. And be angry that they're doing well. You can't want your neighbor's wife, kids, house, money, abilities, uh, and, and love them at the same time. You can't desire to have what belongs to them and still love them because you're jealous and envious of them. You're not happy that they have those things. And how, how, how do we know that? Because you want them for yourself. You're not happy for them that God has increased their estate and has blessed them in all these ways. You're upset that God has blessed them. Instead of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice, as the Apostle Paul instructs us to do, you instead weep because they rejoice. And if we're going to be honest, you probably rejoice when they weep. right? You rejoice when they don't get something and you wanted it as well. makes you happy because that kind of keeps things even. If you can't have it, they shouldn't have it either. When we covet, we are not wanting what is best for our neighbor. Instead, we're desiring to take what is theirs and have it for ourselves. We're only concerned for ourselves and not the good of our neighbor when we covet. And that is why, as I've already said, coveting is a breaking of the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can't love them when you want what's theirs. So coveting is not just saying, I would like to have something. There's nothing wrong with that. Coveting is saying, why did you get that? I wanted it. I'm angry because you're happy. And I would be happier if we could trade places. That's ugly, isn't it? But maybe you're like me. And you're saying to yourself, I don't want someone else's stuff. Right, I don't want to take from them. They can keep their cars and their homes and their nice vacation. Uh, they, they can keep their jewelry and their looks and their health and their children and all of that. They can have all of that. I don't want to take it from them, but I must. And let me put an emphasis on must. But I must have the same. I don't want to take it from them. Let them have it, but I have to have equal. I have to have the same. If that's you, you're still guilty of breaking the 10th commandment. You're still guilty. Why do I say that? Well, what's the opposite of covetousness? Contentment. That's the opposite of covetousness. So it's not just don't covet, it's be content with what you have. And if you're not content with what you have, with what God has given you, and you're constantly desiring more and you're consumed and fueled by desire, then you're also breaking the 10th commandment still. That's why Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. You're still breaking the 10th commandment because you're driven by a desire for what you don't have. You're driven by, you're consumed by, I want better, I want more, I want something that's not mine. And really what your heart is saying is my life is not complete without that thing. Whatever that thing is, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, whether it's a home, job, car, whatever it might be, you're saying that my life is not complete without that. I must have it. I can't be happy without that thing. That is the key to my happiness. That is a discontented, covetous heart. When the desire for something leads to or reveals a discontented heart, you can be certain that you are coveting. So again, to be consumed with the desire for something, even if it's not the desire to take from someone else, is still sinful. But why? I always like to ask why. Why is it wrong for us to be fueled by a desire for something in this world? Whatever it is in this world, why is it sinful for us to be fueled by a desire for something in this world? What's sinful because if a desire controls your life, if a desire controls your thoughts, your decisions, your motivations... If a desire drives your actions and is the pulse of your life, it is idolatry. Whatever sits in the driver's seat of your heart is functionally your God. Whatever drives your thoughts, that is your God. Just a quick question. What do you think about when you're in the shower? (laughs) When you're driving down the road, when you're folding laundry, where, does your, where, do, where do your conversations all go to? Where does your internal monologue, where does it go? What are you talking about to yourself? What are you thinking about all the time? That is your God, whatever it is, that is your God. Am I saying that every thought that you have has to be one explicitly of the Lord God? I'm not saying that but I'm saying what is the majority of your thought life made up of that will reveal what is driving your life is it getting a better job is it saving more money is it buying that house is it fixing something what is it where does your mind go because that is your God to have anything in our lives as the primary driver and desire of our heart that is not God is an idol we commit idolatry And again, it it doesn't matter what the desire is. If it controls and dictates the pattern of your life and it is not God, then it is an idol. And what's wild is that this can actually be a good thing. This desire can be for a good thing that you have turned into an ultimate thing. It could be a desire for children, for a spouse, for a college degree. Again, we've went over all this stuff. I keep naming it. A desire to get a better job, to be smarter, to be healthier. A desire to just do well, it can be a good thing, and I would argue those desires would be godly things to want. But when that desire becomes the heartbeat of your life, it is your God. You've replaced God with whatever that desire is. And this is why the Apostle Paul actually explicitly calls covetousness idolatry in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says it again. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, who has, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. To have our lives governed and ruled over by a desire for the things of this world is idolatry, even if they're good things. Every desire must have its proper place under the rule of God. I'll say that again. Every desire must have its proper place under the rule of God. God must have primary place in our lives. God must have first place in our heart. God must be the greatest desire and highest desire that we have. Anything less is sin. Not really, when we, when we covet, we're showing a heart of unbelief. Maybe you've never thought about it this way. I hadn't. You're showing a heart of unbelief when you covet. You're showing that, that you don't believe that God is big enough or actually good enough or just enough to satisfy you. You're claiming in your heart that you must have something else. You must have something more than him in order to really be happy. In order to really be satisfied. When we covet, we're saying that knowing him is not enough. We're saying that he is not enough to meet our needs. We're saying that God is actually withholding things from us that we truly need in order to be happy. We're saying God is withholding from us. But Scripture tells us in Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that doesn't mean that you won't want or have desires. I'm not twisting Scripture that way. I'm not, I, hopefully I'm not twisting Scripture anyway. <laughs> but to say, I shall not want, what the psalmist is telling us is that since God is our shepherd and leads us, we actually want for nothing. There's nothing that we need that we don't already have. Or if there is something that we need and don't have, then the Lord will be sure to provide it for us. Since the Lord is your shepherd, He will make sure that you have all that you actually need. Not everything that you desire, but everything that you actually need. Since we know God and have been chosen by Him and saved by Him, again, we have everything that we need in Him. Indeed, He will care for us. He's going to make sure that we have everything that we need in the right way at the right time. And if we never get the thing that we wanted, then... We must deduce that we did not actually need it. He knows what's best and he promises to take care of his people in due time and in the proper ways. But in our covetousness, we accuse God of not being all sufficient to meet our needs. Again, to give us what we need, not what you think that you need. God help us from thinking that we're wiser than he is. That I'm the one who actually knows what I need and God has no idea. Blasphemy. How dare we finite creatures who know nothing say that God doesn't know what we need or how to get it to us. That's not a fair thing to say about our God. It's not fair to say that he's not sufficient to meet our needs. He has been far too kind to us for us to say this about him in our hearts. This is an offense against him. Right, for him to be accused of not really loving us or not being enough for us or not being able to meet our needs and give us what we actually need. Not only that, but when we covet, we're saying that we think that God owes us something. Aren't we? Remember, the covetous heart constantly cries out, why not me? <laughs> why shouldn't I have that? Or the dreaded, it's not fair. If in your heart you look at what what others have and say it's not fair that I don't have that, you're claiming that God has done some kind of an injustice by not giving you what it is that you wanted. But there is no injustice on God's part. God is fully within His rights as God to give us whatever He pleases. All that we have is a gift from Him. Literally everything that we have. How dare we think in our hearts that God owes us something. God owes us nothing, nothing except eternal damnation and wrath because of our sins. But not only has He saved us from that in Christ, but He's given us much more in earthly temporal blessings in this life. Everything you own, everything you have, your child, your spouse, whatever you have is a blessing from His hand. God hasn't wronged us. Let me say this, God has not wronged us by blessing someone else. He's not wronged you by giving something to someone else that you wanted. He's not wronged us by withholding from you the thing that you've asked him for. He never does wrong. He never does an injustice. For God to do an injustice would be for God to sin. So for you to say that God has not been fair to you, or that he owes something to you and hasn't paid a debt, as if God could owe anyone anything, is a blasphemy. It's blasphemy for us to think in our hearts that God owes us. But that's one of the things that coveting says without you saying a word. Is that God owes me. So we see now that the 10th commandment is saying to us, you shall desire nothing more than you desire God. You shall desire nothing more than you desire God. And that really makes it a fitting end to the 10 commandments. Right? Like, like, think about it. The the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the tenth says, you shall desire nothing more than me. (laughs) Nothing shall rule your hearts but me. It sandwiches the rest of the ten commandments. God is saying, I am to be your greatest treasure and your greatest desire. And the tenth commandment comes at the end because really it's a summary of everything that came before it. God is telling us, let your great desire be for me. And that might not sound like a summary of the other nine commandments, but think about it for a second. Why do you sin? Why do you sin? I'll tell you, you, you sin because you want to. You sin because you desire, myself included, by the way, I'm trying to sound like a self-righteous person. We sin because we desire to do something that is contrary to the revealed will of God. We sin Because we desire something aside from God. We desire something more than we desire obedience to Him. We desire something more than we desire to please Him. So really, we're desiring whatever that thing is more than Him. What I'm driving at is that when you sin, you break the 10th commandment first, which is sin. You break the 10th commandment first and then You move from that covetous desire for something, whatever it is, you move from breaking the 10th commandment to then breaking the other commandments. So our sinning starts in our hearts and then moves itself out into what we say and do. Sin is a heart problem. All sin starts from an inordinate, sinful desire for something that God forbids. It starts with coveting. We want something that we don't have a right to, breaking the 10th commandment. And then we commit another sin in order to get that thing that we want. We covet and then we break other sins in order to get or attempt to get that which we have coveted. We covet sexual activity, so we break the 7th commandment. We covet revenge, so we break the 6th commandment. We covet someone's things, so we break the Eighth Commandment. If we sat down and gave it enough thought, we could show how every sin reveals a covetous heart. I heard a preacher say the Tenth Commandment is a gateway sin. You break it, and then you break the others. All sin reveals some kind of an inordinate desire for something that God has told us. You don't have a right to that. And we say, but I want it anyway. Even back to the garden in Genesis 3. This tree is not yours. (laughs) Don't eat from it, but I want it. And what did Adam and Eve do? They went and took and ate from it. Covetousness was the beginning of sin. All sin begins with that. It begins in our hearts with a consuming desire for something that is not God. And all of this shows us what our real problem is, doesn't it? Our hearts are the problem. Our desires are disordered, and desires to sin are sin. We desire that which God has forbidden. We desire to sin. We desire things, people, ideas, status, actions, feelings, anything more than we desire God. And again, that in and of itself is sin, and then that leads us to the others. It all begins in the heart, but the 10th commandment tells us that God is to rule our The tenth commandment tells us that we are to be content with the law of God. We're to be content with pleasing Him. Ultimately, we are to be content with Him. We're to be content with Him, with knowing Him, and walking with Him daily in faith and obedience and repentance. That is to be enough for us. To know that He loves us. To know that He has pledged Himself to us is to be enough for us, Christian. But we are covetous. Our desires are out of whack, and we let those sinful desires rule over us more often than not, don't we? And what is our remedy for this? If our desires are out of whack, they need to be put in order. But how in the world are we to change our desires? How are our hearts to be changed? How are we to go from desiring things more than God to desiring God more than anything else? Well, the only way to drive out one desire in your heart is to replace it with a greater desire. Something has to take its place, or it's always going to stay in your heart. Let me illustrate this for you. I used to play football, believe it or not, from third to eighth grade. And I loved playing football. Right? I loved watching the films, memorizing plays, going to games, playing football video games, watching football on TV, all of it. I liked going to practice. Right? I like going to practice. I would do whatever the coaches asked me to do. I learned all the positions that they would let me learn. I've always been a big guy, so it was always lineman positions. Uh, but I really loved playing football. But then, when I was 13, something happened. I got my first drum set. Thank you, Mother. And I never played football again. I never played football again. I practiced the drums three to five hours a day, seven days a week. My mother was a saint, and my sister hated my guts. <laughs> I joined the marching band that following year so that I could get better at the drums, and then even after I quit the marching band after that year, I still did not go back to football because I didn't want anything keeping me from spending as much time as I could on practicing the drums and trying to start a band. Right? I, I went from loving football to not caring much at all about that game anymore. I had a new love. I loved drums. I love playing music. What happened? I had one desire in the beginning. I had a love for football, but then drums came along and they were better than football. And you can disagree with me if you want, but you're wrong. <laughs> music is better than football. And what happened? I turned my back on the game and I never went back. My old desire was ex expelled from my heart and replaced with a stronger one the same must happen to us the same must happen to us if we're going to forsake sinful desires if we're going to stop coveting sinful things if God is going to be the one who rules over our hearts then our desires must change Our desires have to change from I need that thing, that feeling, that person, that experience, that whatever it is. It needs to change to I want God and I must have him more than anything else and knowing him is enough. But how in the world is that going to happen? How are we to attempt to desire God more? You can't change your taste buds. Why do you think you can change your heart? God changes our heart. We're only going to desire God more when we love him more. And humanly speaking, how are we to try to love God more? I'm convinced that the primary way that we stoke the affections of our hearts toward God is to really meditate on what he has already done. It's to meditate on the gospel. And I really mean this. I know that that sounds like a cliche. I remember as a young convert hearing pastors say, Christ and the gospel are the answer to everything. And I used to think that that sounded like some bumper sticker garbage. But it's true. The gospel really is the answer. Because when we get the gospel, right, when we get the gospel, as much as a sinner can get it, right, then we we won't be able to love anything more than we love God. If we really understand it on some level, more than the mechanics, but in our heart, actually understand it, then there won't be room for us to love anything else more than we love God. But most of the time, we don't get it or we forget it. But think about it. Let's rehearse the gospel. You're an evil person. Like, let that sink in for a second. I'm not just saying that trying to be shocking or be the Calvinist I'm supposed to be. You're evil. I'm evil. The heart of man is only evil continuously. Your desires are horrible. The things you do are a product of what is in your heart. You're wicked. You are someone who has broken God's law every single day of your life. Christian You are someone who was once an enemy of God, an absolute wretch, guilty before God for violating every single one of his commandments. And God knew what you would be before you were born. He knew all the ways that you would ever sin. He knew all the vile thoughts you'd have. He knew all the times that you would commit spiritual adultery against him and desire things other than him. But in spite of all of that, God the Father chose you. Think about that for a minute. He chose you. Knowing what you would be, knowing how horrible of a sinner you would be, Christian, God chose you. He chose you for salvation through Jesus Christ. He chose you by pure grace, purely because He wanted to, not because of anything in you, because there was nothing but sin in you, but by grace alone He chose you. Not only that, but the Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh for you. For his church, absolutely. But I want you to think about for you, the wretch, the son of God, the Lord of glory, who dwells in inapproachable light that no man can approach, took on flesh and became a human being, humbled himself to the form of a servant in order to live in your place perfectly. Perfectly. Because you can't meet the requirement of God. And then in taking your sins upon himself, he suffered the wrath of God on a cross and died in your place so that you might be forgiven of your sins. Who are you that the Almighty would do this for you? Think of the great love of God the Father to send his only begotten Son, the unique one, into the world to take on flesh and live and die for you you know what you are. Who are you that the Son of God would die for you? Think of the great love of God, that He would work salvation for you. Not only that, but then God the Holy Spirit applied the work of Christ to you. He brought you from spiritual death and blindness and gave you light and gave you sight He caused you to be born again and gave you the gift of faith so that you might lay hold of Christ and then by faith the Spirit of God applied all of the benefits of Christ and His work to you. And by the work of Christ applied by the Spirit of God you've been adopted into the family of God no longer an enemy of God but one of His beloved children. You are now His child and part of His covenant. You belong forever to God now nothing can change that God is now your father salvation is yours you have a real and right relationship to the one that you were once alienated from your creator and why do you have these blessings? the blessings of being chosen the atonement of Christ his righteousness given to you being justified adopted into the family of God having eternity with God as your destiny being a child of God why do you have these blessings? because God loves you God help us if we forget this. Because God loves you. Plain and simple. Ephesians 1 says it pleased God to do this. It pleased God to show you this kindness and give you everything. Let me say it again. He gave you everything when he gave his son for you. He gave you everything. It pleased God to give you all that you need for this life and eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God now says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God promises to be your caring father. He promises, as we read in Psalm 23, to be your shepherd, to meet your every need. Listen to me. Since God did not spare his only son in order to to love you and save you from the penalty that you brought upon yourself by your own sins, if he did not spare his only son, will he spare anything else that you need? Will He spare anything else? Has He not proven His love for you? The most precious thing He gave for you. Will He not give you what you need? Will He withhold anything from you? Will He not be all sufficient for you? God has given you the promise of eternal life. He's given you life right now, true life in His Son. What else do you think that you need? I'm serious, what do you think you need? You have Christ. What else do we need? If we really get this truth of the gospel, if we really understand as much as a sinner can, God's great love for us, if we really get that God has given us everything we need in Christ and our promises to be father to us, then how could we ever desire or love anything more than him? As we rehearse the gospel, does your heart not soar with affection for God? And could it be that I should gain? Or like the hymn says, Who am I? Who am I to gain this from God? If we get this, there won't be any room left in our heart for other desires. But so often we forget, or we just don't get it because we don't think about the great love of God for us enough. Our covetous reveals a general, our covetousness reveals a general lack of appreciation for an understanding of the gospel we forget God's great and unending love for us and then we in turn grow cold in our love for him. And this brings us back to the preface preface of the Ten Commandments. There's a reason we have been reading the preface along with the rest of these commandments in the second table of the law. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We're to have no other gods before God because it is he who saved us. I brought you out of spiritual Egypt. I brought you out of your slavery to sin. Have no gods but me. Be content with me. Be pleased in having me. Let nothing else get your gaze but me because nothing else deserves your affection but him. He alone is God. He alone is to rule your hearts because he alone is your savior. And really we have all we need in Christ and that might sound cheesy but it's true. And the longer you're a Christian, the more you'll begin to realize that is true. We know God. God has covenanted with us through Christ to love us, keep us, provide for us, and be God to us. And ultimately save us and bring us to his side forever. What else do we need? We might not have everything that we would like to have in this life, but truly we have everything that we need. Paul was absolutely right, obviously. When he said, if we have food and clothing, let us be content. If our basic needs are met, let us be content. Clothes on your back, food in your gut, you have Christ. Be content. So how are we to keep from the sin of coveting? How are we to keep from our sinful desire in general? To sum this up, we focus on the goodness of God. The goodness of God that he's shown... Us. We think on how kind he has been towards us. We consider the blessings he has given us in Christ. We count our blessings in general, and that sounds cheesy, but I'm serious. Look at your life. We're Americans. Look at your life and tell me God hasn't been abundantly kind to you. Even if you're the poorest person in this room, I dare you to say God has not been good to you. First off, in Christ. Second off, in in, in temporal, earthly blessings. Tell me God hasn't been good to you. Count your blessings. Recount the faithfulness that God has shown you. Consider what you have in the Lord Jesus. And ask yourself, what else do I actually need? As I said already, surely if God gave his son for you, he won't withhold anything else from you that you actually need. Surely God is enough for you. He has met your greatest need in providing you a savior in his son. Truly he can be trusted for all the other trivial matters of this life because everything else is trivial compared to that. As we consider the cross of Christ and the love of God that's been shown to us, all of our sinful desires for other things will begin to melt away. All of our covetousness will ebb away. And how could they not? How could they stand a chance when compared to the love of God? God's given us all we need, and he's given it to us in Christ. We can trust him with everything in this life and know with certainty that he will not do us wrong. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word for calling us to account for our covetousness and showing us your goodness and that you indeed are sufficient for us. Lord, I pray that you'd grant us repentance as we search our hearts and ask ourselves, what consumes my thoughts? What consumes my life? What drives me? And Lord, if it's not you, please, show us that you are enough and grant us repentance. Lord, as we consider our own sinfulness, as we close these Ten Commandments, and we think that we have broken all of them in some way, God, the gospel does indeed become sweeter to us. You've shown us the evilness of our sin, the the vileness that is in our hearts. And Lord, we are astounded at your great love for us anyway and your faithfulness to us. Lord, grant us hearts that love you. Please help, the, help us as we meditate on the gospel that it would become more real to us every time we think on it. We God, above all this. We, we thank you so much for Christ crucified for us. And we thank you for your great mercy found in him alone. Amen.